Hey guys, welcome back to the Read to Me podcast. I'm Miss Busen, and today is August 12, 2020. Where we left off, Nisha and Emil had tried to make a friend, but they got caught and they had to flee right away. So fortunately, they made it on to the second train that came. And we'll see if they make it to their final destination this time. September 12, 1947. I have seen things I've never thought I'd see. There were men fighting. There was blood. I don't know if the train will stop and more fighting will happen and more people will be killed, including us. If anyone finds us, please send it to Kazi Saeed and Merv Perkas. Please remember us. Please remember the way it used to be when India was whole. September 26th, 1947. Dear Mama, it has been two weeks since I last wrote. At first I couldn't write and tell you what happened, but now I must. Maybe if I put it in here, you can help me carry it. When I last wrote, we were on the train. We had traveled for about an hour or so, and then the train started to slow down. I couldn't see out the window because I was sitting on the floor, but I saw lots of people looking out. Why are we slowing down? Dottie asked. They're stopping the train, a man called out. Papa grabbed us by our arms and made us stand up. Then we pushed through all the people and looked out too. I noticed Dottie's hands, the soft blue-gray of her veins resting under her thin, dry brown skin. I follow her veins to the tips of her fingers. They shook. That's what I remember before everything changed. Her fingers shaking like a picture on a wall, just as an earthquake happens. Mama, I can't tell you yet. I thought I could, but it's making me feel sick. I'll try again tomorrow. Love, Nisha. September 27th, 1947. Dear Mama, this time I will tell you the best I can, I promise. I don't remember all of it. There are places where my memory goes blank. Maybe I even saw more, but I will tell you what I remember. There were men, probably about four of them. They must have blocked the tracks. I just know the train slowed and the brakes screeched and we were all thrown forward on top of one another. There were bodies tumbling, feet in people's faces. Emil and Dottie fell on top of me in a heap. After a few moments, we righted ourselves. I heard the yelling before I saw them. I watched Dottie's hands shake and I heard the sounds getting louder and louder. The sounds of angry feet hitting the ground, denting the earth. The women in our car held their children close. Dottie, Emil, and I huddled together as low as we could. And Papa watched out the window. Get back! Papa suddenly yelled, moving us away from the main door, pressing us toward the middle. Two conductors pushed past us, not yelling, but screaming, waving knives. One had a gun. Have you ever heard a grown man scream, Mama? It's so strange. Everything felt like it was happening in slow motion, and that I wasn't in my body, like the way I felt when the man pressed the knife against my throat. I hoped it was a dream and I'd fallen asleep on the floor of the train. The men had climbed up the stairs and started to enter our car, but our conductors managed to force them back down the stairs. They all waved their weapons, making high-pitched and deafening sounds beyond human. I covered my ears. One conductor stepped on my bare toe, crushed it as he trampled past. I looked down and saw blood by my nail. I watched it run down my toe until Emil pulled me toward him and Dottie. Papa stood in front, guarding us, his hands out. Dottie, Emil, and I crouched with other women and children. There was a mother right next to us, clutching her three children, a baby and two young girls. I could feel one of the girls' breath on my neck. It smelled sour. The women murmured prayers. Emil and I squeezed each other's hands. And this is what I thought. If I die, I'm glad I'm here with my brother, the other half of me. They fought outside. At that point, Papa and many other passengers rushed to the window to see. Emil pulled me to the bottom of to a bottom crack of one of the windows and we watched. 
our heads pressed against strangers' heads. The men punched and sliced at each other. A man yelled out that the Hindus were murderers. The men came from our train, accused Muslims of the same. Some of the passengers started to respond to the accusations and rush out to join the other men, their wives pulling on their arms, begging them not to go. There was blood, a lot of blood. A man's leg slashed, a man's throat slashed, a man stabbed in the chest, then a gunshot. There were Sikh men too, everyone trying to kill one another. A Muslim man fell, a Hindu man fell, a Sikh man fell, his turban unraveling. I saw a Muslim man lying on the ground, his throat slashed, his eyes rolled back. He had fallen right next to a Hindu conductor whose chest was bleeding heavily. They lay close together, hands touching. They would die like that. And I watched them, Mama. I watched them die like that. The train started to move. The Hindu men who were still alive jumped back on. I looked at the dying men on the ground. For what? I did not know. More revenge? I shook all over. I had never seen anyone kill before. It has changed me. I used to think people were mostly good, but now I wonder if anyone could be a murderer. Who was the first one, Mama? The first to kill when they decided to break apart India. Shortly after we rolled away, my head felt light and everything went dark. I don't remember anything else until Papa shook me. Mia and Dottie were huddled next to me. Had I fainted? Had I fallen asleep on the floor of the train? How much time had passed? Papa shook my shoulder gently, his eyes glassy. Emil, Nisha, we're here, he said. Love, Nisha. September 28th, 1947. Dear Mama, I didn't even tell you where we are now. We're in Jodhpur. We're in the new India. The old one is all gone. We are staying in a one-room flat over a spice shop that Raj uncle and Rupesh uncle arranged for us. It is a small kitchen area with a sink and a stove. Cracked green and yellow tiles cover the floor. There is a washroom with a drain in the floor and a chain attached to the shower sprout that dumps blasts of cold water on you and a toilet room at the end of the hallway outside our flat. The water only runs a few hours a day, but at least there is running rot water. When we first arrived, there were sand and ants everywhere, but we cleaned it up as best we could. Still, it's not easy to live in one dark, dusty room. I don't know how long we will be here. Somehow, when we were walking, I couldn't imagine being alone. would never want to. But now that we're out of danger, I miss sitting in the garden at our old house on the hill watching the sunset, or being alone in the bathroom when Emil wasn't there, or secretly poking around Papa's room or the kitchen. There was always something to explore, always a place to be alone and quiet. I also miss Rashid Uncle's house, your house. I miss lying on the couch, reading books, even if we couldn't go outside. Now there's a wooden table and chairs and a space for all of our bedrolls. That's it. Nothing is on the sandstone walls. We have a roof. We are alive. We are safe. So how can I complain? How dare? How do I dare complain when so many others didn't make it here? Raj uncle and Rupesh uncle and their families live down the block in similar flats. And we all have dinner together at our place or their places. My five cousins, Emil and I, sitting on the floor around a mat with dented metal plates in our laps. It's good to see them here, but I can only think of everything we've lost. Does that mean I'm a terrible person? I think a lot about our mango trees, so many of them. I think about the sound of insects and birds at dusk. I think about the sugarcane and Kazi. I think about Kazi all the time. I want to pretend I don't miss him, but I do a lot. In some ways, he was my only real friend. Jodhpur is a big, hot city. The only thing I like about it is that nobody is trying to kill us here and that many of the houses are painted a beautiful blue. Will my bad dreams ever stop? 
Will I ever not think about the things I saw on the train? It runs through my head every day like a radio on in the background. Papa told us after we got here, after we settled down and were safe, that thousands of people have died crossing the border both ways. Maybe the gods were watching over us, he said. And Papa never, never talks like that. He also said that it wasn't even so dangerous where we were. He said that all kinds of people, men, women, and children, had been killed in unthinkable ways and are still being killed. He said that trains pulled up to stops filled with dead people from both sides of the border. Everyone blames one another. Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, they have all done awful things. But what have I done? What has Papa or Dadi or Emil done? What has Kazi done? I want to know who I can blame, Mama, for the nightmares that wake me up every night now. It must be someone's fault. Maybe I'll blame everyone. Love, Nisha. October 3rd, 1947. Dear Mama, we have been here now almost three weeks. I haven't been writing. I don't know why. My brain is filled with sludge. I feel so sad all the time. Aren't I supposed to be happy now? Emil and I started school last week. I'm learning Hindi now, which helps keep my mind off the things I don't want to think about. I never speak it out loud, though. Papa found a clinic to work in. Dottie sweeps the flat over and over and sings again and writes letters that she won't let anyone see. I still don't talk to anyone, not even to Emil. And he has stopped asking. He will make friends now at school and won't care so much. I feel terrible that I've even shut out Emil, but I just can't make myself speak. It's not a choice. The words just won't come out. When I imagine my words out loud, they seem so deafening, as if the sound could actually hurt someone. At least things are better with Papa and Emil. Ever since we came here, Papa is kinder to him and tries to help him with his schoolwork. I think it's because Papa really had to imagine Emil being gone forever, and he saw how terrible that would be. Papa also keeps begging me to talk. Papa has never done that. He knelt down before me last night with tears in his eyes and told me he was sorry if he treated me too harshly when we left Rashid Uncle's. That none of it mattered now. That the important thing was that we were safe and alive. He asked me to forgive him. He asked me what he could do. I've never seen him like this. What can I tell him? That it's better for everyone if I don't talk? That the only words I have left to say are the ones no one wants to hear? And even if I wanted to, my body won't let me? Instead, I pat his shoulder. I'm okay, Papa. I write on a scrap of paper and show it to him. He reads it and tells me I don't have to be so brave anymore. I am so stunned, I drop my pencil. Papa thinks I'm brave? Why on earth would he think that? After school every day, I go to the market with Emil and Dottie and we buy our food. We do all the cooking now. Papa and Dottie let me. I even cook for Raj uncles and Rupesh uncles' families. Nobody cares if I grow up to be a cook. I should be happy about that, but it's not a happy or sad feeling. It's just something I must do. The smell of the rice boiling, the feel of my knife cutting through the fresh tomato, the sizzle of onions and mustard seed hitting the pan. It's the only thing that makes me feel better. Last night, Raj uncle brought a radio with him and we listened to it while we ate dinner. It was Gandhi's birthday. The radio announcer said Gandhi spent his birthday fasting and spinning yarn on his wheel. He also said that many people came to visit the Mahatma and offer him good wishes, but Gandhi wasn't joyous. He was heartbroken because Hindus and Muslims were still fighting and killing one another. I understand how he feels. When Gandhi spins, maybe he finds peace, like I do when I cook. Love, Nisha. October 5th, 1947. Dear Mama, there was a girl at school. She's very small and wears her hair in two braids, one on either side. She follows me around, but doesn't say anything. And of course, I don't say anything to her. She sits next to me in the classroom and sits next to me at lunch, and we both don't talk to anyone. Sometimes she looks at me and smiles a little bit, 
but it makes me scared to look at her in the eye, so I quickly look down. I don't even know her name. I wonder if she's from Jodhpur if she came here like me. Did she see anyone die? Did she see worse things than I did? I want to ask her these questions, but I can't. I am broken. I am broken on top of broken. The school is a lot bigger than the one I used to go to. It's also mixed, boys and girls. I'm glad to be back in school. I like to put my head down and write my words, do my sums, and try not to think about anything else. I keep my pencils very sharp. But then there's this girl. I wish she'd leave me alone. Love, Nisha. October 15th, 1947. Dear Mama, something has happened. I still don't think it's real, which is why I haven't told you. I think I have to wait to write it because I'm afraid I'm dreaming. If I write about it, I might wake up. I think it's a gift from you, Mama. How else could something like this happen? Love, Nisha. October 18th, 1947. Dear Mama, it's been three days and I'm ready to write it down because now I believe it's real. When Emil and I came home from school, there was a man squatting in our alley on the way back on the way to the back stairs that take us up to our little flat. He crouched, skinny and filthy, his hair and beard overgrown and matted. Emil took my arm. Let's go get Papa at the clinic, he said quietly, pulling me away. I nodded, but was thinking of Dottie inside. What if she came out to go to the market? He looked too weak to be dangerous. The man started to reach his hand out. Emil and I backed away. Emil? Nisha? The man croaked. How did he know our names? He looked at us, his bony face tilted up, his eyes connecting with mine. I knew those eyes. I knew that voice. I f- it felt like I'd been riding on the chest, the crest of a high wave, and now it tumbled onto shore. Kazi? I whispered and sank to my knees. It wasn't hard to say his name. It was like my voice had been waiting for this moment. Emil ran to him and helped him up. He put his arms around him. I was crying, trembling, my face in my hands. I was afraid to look up, afraid I had just imagined it was him and that it was just someone looking for food. Nisha, Emil called out, help me. I raised my head slowly and saw that it was still Kazi. His face contorted like he was crying, but no tears came. I walked over and gently took his hand, which was caked with dirt. Through my blurred eyes, I pinched the skin lightly on the back of his hand like Papa did to me when he had no water. His skin skin stayed a, a little in a bunch. He needs a doctor now. Go, I said to Emil. Go get Papa. It was strange that I was the one with words suddenly. Emil stared at me for a second. Go, I told him and gave him a little light push on his chest. I will bring him upstairs, I said. Are you sure? Emil asked. Yes, please go fast. Emil touched Kazi's arm and ran off. How did you... I started to say, but Kazi stopped me. Later, he managed to say. I had spoken enough for someone to stop me, for Kazi to stop me. If he didn't look so weak and sick, I would have jumped up and down for joy. This couldn't be real, I thought. Maybe he... We had died on the train, and we were reincarnated and living in a different life now. He put his arm around me. His sharp, sweaty smell was familiar. It smelled like the walk we took to get here. It smelled like pain. We struggled up the stairs to see Dottie. Oh! Dottie exclaimed and put her hand to her mouth as we came in. It's Kazi! It's Kazi! I said, not believing my words. Dottie nodded and cried a little and helped him over to her chair. He slumped in it. I knelt before him as Daddy got some water and a bowl of rice. I held the cup to his lips. He sipped slowly. I fed him small bites of rice, then bigger. Go slow, 
Daddy said, her, t- her tears still spilling out, patting his hand over and over. Kazi's here, with us. When Papa came back, my voice retreated. He checked Kazi from head to toe, listening to his heartbeat, measured his blood pressure. Kazi ate and drank a little more, and Papa took Kazi into the washroom to help him clean up. Then Papa got Kazi set up on his bedroll. We all knelt around him. I had to come find you. You are my family. I don't have my own, you know. I have no siblings. My parents are dead. Daddy wrote me and told me where you were, he said before he fell into a deep sleep. It's a miracle, she said as she cried softly and held his hand. That night, Peppa sle- Papa slept on a thin blanket on the floor, with only a skirt rolled up as a pillow. Emil and I both offered Papa our pillows, but he turned them down. Is Kasi going to be okay? Emil whispered before we all fell asleep. I think so, Papa said, shaking his head. Is Kazi allowed to stay with us? You know, because he's... Emil started to ask. He's family, Papa only said. As I went to sleep that night, I felt peaceful in a way I'd never felt before. We were put back together, to Nehru, Jina, India, and Pakistan, to the men to, to the men who fight and kill. You can't split us. You can't split love. Sometimes I think about why we get to be alive when so many others died for no reason, walking the same walk, crossing the same border. All that suffering, all that death, for nothing. We'll never understand as long as I live how a country could change overnight from only a thin line drawn. But at least I didn't have to wonder anymore what would happen to Kazi, or if he would live with another family. That feeling is so new, like a brilliant jewel I can't stop staring at. At least this hole in my heart is filled. I can cook with him again. I can talk with him. For some reason, he is the only person I want to talk to. Love, Nisha. November 10th, 1947. Dear Mama, there is something else I haven't told you yet. Kazi brought a piece of one of your paintings. Just a folded square of canvas ripped from its frame, paint chipped. It's the hand holding the egg. I almost fainted when he showed it to us. How did he know how special it was to me? My mind went swirling back to our home, back to the place where Papa kept your paintings. Here was a piece of you, brought to us from the ashes of our old life. Papa walked forward and took it. Thank you, he said, his hand on Kazi's shoulder. It looked like tears had formed in Papa's eyes, but he blinked and they were gone. That was a few weeks ago. Yesterday, Papa came home and hung a picture on the wall. He had gotten the piece of your painting framed. It's much smaller than it was, but the important part is there. The hand, the egg. He hung it on the wall over our table. Kazi is cooking again, and I'm not just his helper. We cook together, Kazi and I, in this little kitchen. He went to the market with a meal, as soon as he felt well enough, and brought back ingredients for Sai Bahaji, the dish that will always remind me of home. We lined up the spinach, tomatoes, onions, chilies, and other ingredients on the table. Then I got the mortar and pestle I had been keeping in my bag by my bedroll. I hadn't wanted to look at it since we got here. It was too sad. I had been wrapping our spices in a thin towel and crushing them with a rock. I brought it to him and held it out. Kazi smiled wide at me and nodded. Good girl, he said. It's yours now. I washed it out and put a handful of cumin seeds in the bowl. I pressed them down with the pestle, the white marble cool and heavy in my hand. I've never thought I could feel so happy crushing spices. Papa is trying to find us a bigger flat so we can have more rooms and furniture, but I kind of like it here now. This will always be the place where we started to live again. This is where Kazi came back and made me feel loved. He risked his life to be with us. Would I have done the same? Still, it will be good to have more space and real beds. 
I think about our old compound, the main room, the hallways, our bedroom, Papa's room, the study, the gardens, Kazu's own cottage. I didn't know we were so rich until we became poor. But Papa's working hard at the clinic, and I don't think we will be poor forever. George Purr is okay. Very hot, but the people are friendly. Nobody asks about Kazi. Just go about their business. Kazi doesn't wear his topi outside anymore. I wonder if that bothers him. He shares Papa's clothes. He still does his prayers on a little mat that Papa found for him. When I hear his low, chanting words, it fills me up. Sometimes I hear Daddy's high-pitched singing in the background, her Hindu songs and Kazi's Muslim prayers, a sweet, rich music together. I'm sorry I'm writing less. It could be because life has become more no normal. But I'm so happy I made this space for you, this space for us. It's where I can go find you whenever I need to. I will always tell you the important things, and I promise, Mama, no matter what happens, you will never be alone. Remember that girl at school? She finally talked to me. She asked me my name, but I couldn't answer her. I just looked down at my lap. Then she did something amazing. She leaned in. She put her hand on my shoulder. She told me I was okay, and she told me I didn't have to talk. I felt tears swelling in my eyes. I wrote her, thank you, on my notepad and held it up. Then I wrote, my name is Nisha. She told me her name was Sumita. No girl at school has ever been so kind to me. I have decided something. I will try to speak to Sumita, even if it's the last thing I do. I want you to see me, have a real friend, and I want to feel the way I felt with Hafa. It may take me a long time, but I will try because Sumita is the first person who ever told me that it's okay just to be myself. I want to be brave, but Mama, maybe I already am. Love, Nisha. Okay, that is the end of our story. I will read the author's note in our next podcast. Um, it tells you a little bit about the actual history of what happened in this story that we read today. Um, so I hope you guys enjoyed it. Join me next time. Goodbye.